Thank you, Sharon. <laughs> Hello, my name is Linda, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Thanks to God's grace, the 12, 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, I've been sober since December 30th of 1987, and I'm truly grateful for that. That's a real miracle in my life. And um, I don't know, I feel a little melancholy today. I'm not sure exactly what's going on. Uh, I didn't sleep very well. I think it's because Jan was snoring. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, usually I'm a pretty good sleeper. And uh, so I don't know. Uh, I never really know what's going on with me till after it's over. So uh, that's where I'm at right now. But um, I'm real glad to be here, and I'm glad that Liz asked me to speak. Um, and the big thing about that for me is that Liz has known me for a long time, and she's heard my lead several times, and she still asked me to speak. And, uh, you know, uh, people that treat you like that, you have to love them and you know that they love you and that's really a big part of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm just grateful to have people like that in my life today and I didn't have that when I came here. When I came here I wasn't even sure that I was an alcoholic. I knew that I had problems and I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I couldn't stand to live the way that I was living. I never thought about not drinking and a lot of times today I don't think about not drinking but every day I think about not going back to the way that I used to live. Alcoholics Anonymous for me was a step up. I had nothing when I came here. And I'm real grateful to be here today. I don't know. I, I don't know if I was born an alcoholic or I wasn't an alcoholic, born an alcoholic or if it developed. I don't know. I don't think my upbringing had anything to do with my alcoholism. I grew up uh, here in Ohio, about probably 70 miles from here, in a little small town. It was a farming community in a farming county, and uh, you know, with all them farmers, everybody knows everybody, and uh, they look after you, and they love you, and uh, if you do something wrong, they tell your parents. And I thought they were just a bunch of busybodies trying to run my life, and I couldn't wait to grow up and move away from that town, and that's what I did. The first opportunity I had when I grew up, uh, I moved away from that little town. I went to Tampa, Florida, and that was in 1973. And I moved to Tampa, Florida because I wanted to be free to be me, and I wasn't in that town. Uh, now, my sponsor says that the book calls that self-will run riot. I personally like the phrase, free to be me. <laughs> She's not here, and I'm allowed to say it. <laughs> so anyway, I was glad to hear that. Uh, I moved to Tampa, Florida, and I checked into the Ramada Inn on Bush Boulevard, and I bought a bottle of whiskey, and my drinking started. And I don't know, I did drink that first day that I drank. I drank as much as I could, as fast as I could, as long as I could stand it. And that's the way I drank till I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes the quantities were different, uh, but it always did the same thing for me. You know, I took as much as I could. I don't know. I, I tend to think that I was an alcoholic from the get-go. And I liked drinking. I moved down there because I wanted to drink. I didn't want to drink in that little town because everybody knew what I was doing. And they would blame my parents for the way that I was. So I needed to get away from there. Today I know that that's exactly what I did. And I lived in Tampa about four and a half years. And uh, what happened was I went down there. I'd had a job up here for seven years. And that company, I told them I was leaving town and... It was a national company. They said, well, if you go down there, they'd give me a job down there. So I went down there, and I got a job down there, and I found a man right away. And I kept that man until I left town. I stayed there four and a half years, and through a series of events, I was done with that town and done with him. So I moved out of town, and I uh, came back to Louisville, Kentucky is what I did. I called that company back up here, and I said, you know, I need to move back. And uh, we had discussed several things, and I decided to take a job in Louisville. And uh, in February of 1978, I moved to Louisville. And that's how I got rid of that man or how he got rid of me, however you want to look at it. Um, so I moved to Louisville and I was working for this company and they gave me a good job. 
and I found a man right away, and I was pretty happy in Louisville, and I, I wanted to quit drinking when I went to Louisville, and that was in February of 1978. I didn't know that I was an alcoholic. I didn't call it that, but I knew that drinking was a problem for me then, and I know that I wanted to quit drinking because I did. I quit drinking when I moved to Louisville, and I know that I quit drinking from the February that I moved there. I was not drinking the first Derby Day there, which is the first weekend in May. Now, I don't know what time, at what point I started to drink after that. I know that two years later when I left Louisville, I was drinking night and day. And I had many problems down there. And uh, I blamed a lot of my problems on my job. Uh, they weren't doing enough for me. Now, I don't know what enough was, but I knew they weren't doing it. And that lasted until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. But anyway, um, what happened in Louisville was um, I had uh, I'd been there a couple of years, and I decided that the job they gave me uh, it wasn't a good job. I didn't want it anymore. And what I was, I was a merchandiser for them, and I would have told you that I made too much money and had too much idle time. It was a problem for me. And I told them I wanted to be a manager again for them. I had been a manager previous to them. And uh, I don't know that they particularly liked that idea, but they agreed to let me do that. And so in February of 1980, I came up to northern Kentucky to the Quality Inn, and there was some kind of meeting there. And I'm not exactly sure what that was. It lasted a week. And the guy that I had latched on to in Louisville, he worked for the same company, so he drove me up there that week. And I'll be honest, I don't remember anything about that week. I do know that it started out, it was to be something that was to prepare me to start to be a store manager, like, the next week. And, I, I again, I don't remember anything about it. All I can tell you is when I got in the car to go back to Louisville with that guy, um, I needed him to stop and get me something to drink. And I can remember knowing that day that I could not ride back to Louisville without a drink. I knew that February of 1980 that I couldn't put one foot in front of the other without a drink. And yet my sobriety date is December 30th of 1987, almost eight years later. And that's because all the knowledge in the world is not going to keep me sober. Knowing what alcohol does to me when I put it in my body will never keep me sober. I'm absolutely and positively sober through the grace of a loving God. And that's it. Uh, and anyway, I convinced him to stop and get me something to drink on the way back to Louisville, and he did. And as I was beginning to drink it, I knew that drinking was a problem, and I wasn't going to do it anymore. I told him that. I tried to convince him this was my last drink, and he all but laughed out of the car, I think. But anyway, uh, I had seen a doctor previously in Louisville because I had high blood pressure. And that doctor told me that he thought I had a drinking problem. And I can remember leaving his office knowing that he didn't know anything, and I didn't need him to be my doctor. And uh, that day riding back to Louisville when I got that drink, I knew that I was going to go see that doctor because he, what he told me was that he thought I had a drinking problem and that if I ever thought I had a drinking problem, he could help me. And I knew that that day. So when I got back to Louisville, I called that doctor up and I told him that I had a drinking problem and I needed his help. And he asked me to come into the office. And I went into the office and he talked to me and he said that uh, he thought we should hit this head on. And I said, well, yeah, I'd like to hit this head on. I didn't know what head-on was, but I wanted to be rid of this problem. And uh, he told me that he thought I should go into the hospital. Now, I don't really know what he told me. I know what I thought I heard. And I said, okay, I would agree to that. And uh, he had to get a bed ready for me. And I had to call these people that I had just spent a week with here in northern Kentucky that was getting ready to install me as a store manager for them that we were going to have a little delay on that. So I went home to call the people in Cincinnati I would just spent a week with, with our company, and uh, he was going to make arrangements for the bed. And I called up the people, uh, the supervisor that I worked for and that I was going to become a store manager for, and I told him that uh, I had a problem that needed to be taken care of before I could be a store manager. And I had known this guy, I guess at that time I had known him for uh, 10 or 12 years, maybe a little longer, and uh, we talked a little while, 
And he said to me in the end, he says, well, Linda, what is the problem? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, I think it's alcoholism. And he said, oh, no, Linda. He says, I'd have thought of anybody but you. And I said, me too. I was totally shocked. I mean, I was shocked at that point that that doctor thought I was an alcoholic. But I said, you know, I don't know. That's what the doctor said. And, and this was 1980. They didn't know nothing about it. And I didn't know nothing about it. And uh, he said to me, well, what do you do? And I said, well, the doctor said I needed to go into the hospital for a while. And he said, well, how long does it take? And I said, I don't know. The doctor said 10 days to two weeks. And I said, I'm a pretty quick study. I'll try to be out in a few days or a week. And so we kind of left it at that. That's what we're going to do. And I got, well, I was just going to call him up and tell him I was ready. And so I called the doctor back, and the doctor said you had to be there, I don't know, by 4.30 or 5.30 that afternoon or wait till the next morning. And I was a very busy alcoholic. Uh, so I had to wait till the next morning. You know, I had to drink up everything there was all night long. You know, this was my last hurrah, so I thought. And went into the hospital. I was very inebriated, didn't know where I was going or what I was doing. And uh, But I was in there, and after a few days, I noticed people were coming and going, and I wasn't. That seemed a little different. I mean, it wasn't in the plan. I thought I was the smartest of all of them, and I should be going. And after a week there, and people were coming and going, uh, I began to wonder what was going on. And um, somebody came in, checked in that morning, and I think we kind of gravitate towards one another. And uh, so she was in the some kind of room there, like a, I don't know, a room, whatever everybody sets. And I went in and sat beside her and started to talk to her. And because uh, I didn't understand why people were coming and going, and I wasn't. And she explained to me that I was in the lockup ward in a nut house and that uh, they were watching me. And uh, those people were just going to a free floor and you had to do certain things to get there. And so uh, she had been there before, so I felt rather fortunate. She knew the ropes. So she kind of gave me a plan of attack and uh, I was on the free floor that afternoon. But here's the point of that. You see, I went into that hospital because I had an alcohol problem or because I had a problem in my life. And the day I found out where I was and what was going on, I no longer had that problem. I had made a wrong decision or a wrong turn somewhere. And I knew I was not like those people. I mean, those people there, excuse the expression, were crazy. I mean, <laughs> there, there were some of them there. I'm serious, but it was serious business. And <laughs> I didn't feel like a part of. I, <laughs> I can't explain it any more than that. Uh, but anyway, I was on the free floor, and I was doing the things that I was told to do. I, I wanted to get out the front door with a clean bill of health. And, uh, you know, I was there for, I think, five or six weeks. I got out the end of March, and I think I went in about the middle of February. So it wasn't a real quick trip to me, and I could hardly wait to get out. But, you know, in those places, you're either uh, too passive or too aggressive, or you're not this, you're not that. They watch you all the time. It's hard to be just what they want you to be. And I, they always give you this against medical advice, and I didn't know nothing about it. I was scared to death of what was going to happen, scared they were going to keep me, to be honest. But anyway, through some good advice of people that had been there many times, I finally made it to the front door. And I can remember standing there with my bag. I'd called a cab to come pick me up. I didn't anybody pick me up. And the lady that, um, the nurse, they watch you when you leave. And she was standing there till my cab came and she was talking to me. And uh, I'll never forget because we were talking about people in a place like that. And she told me, she says, uh, she says, oh, you'll be back. I've seen your kind before. And I hated her for that because I knew that she knew, I knew that she was right. Because see, I left there and I knew I had not taken care of the problem that I had when I went there. And I, I carried that with me every day till I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Every day I knew that I had the problem and didn't take care of it. But I couldn't face it. I just couldn't. I had to deny it. And everything I did from that point on was just an intentional denial of what was going on inside of me. I mean, I had to live the lie, but I knew the truth. 
and that's the most difficult, difficult thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I left there with two things. I left that hospital with a fear of going back because I knew I needed it. And the second thing I had was a running prescription of abuse that would have lasted a lifetime. And uh, I lived with the fear until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I didn't quite keep the abuse that long. Anabuse became a problem for me. Uh, but anyway, when I left that hospital, I went home and I called those people in Cincinnati and told them I was well and I was ready to check into my new store. And at the time, I don't think we had quite discussed which store that I was going to take. There was a couple or three of them that was on the table there at the time I went into the hospital. And I don't really remember any of the decisions that I had made before then. I only know that one of the stores was in northern Kentucky, not very far from that hotel I'd been to in a week. And I thought I hadn't had any trouble while I was there, and I wanted to move to that town. And that's how I got to northern Kentucky. And the next day after I got out of the hospital, I came to northern Kentucky and was introduced as a store manager uh, for this company, and I started uh, managing one of their stores. And I didn't go back to Louisville. I sent back a uh, moving truck to come get my stuff when I found a place to live, and I moved to northern Kentucky. And uh, it was the 1st of April in 1980. And I started being a store manager, and I was taking antabuse, and I was doing okay. And I don't know how long it was. It could have, I, you know, I would hope to think it was more than six days, but it could have been six days, six weeks, six minutes, I don't know. But I woke up one morning and I realized that they were lying to me what would happen if I drank on that antibiotic. And, you know, today I know if an alcoholic needs a drink, you'll tell yourself anything if you need that drink. And I needed that drink. And so I went and I bought a bottle of whiskey and I began to drink on the antibiotic. And it made me deathly ill. I mean, it, everything that they told me would happen to me happened to me. You don't die, you just wish that you had. You make a huge mess. I mean, it's the most disgusting, awful thing. But what happened to me was that I realized that if you drank on the antabuse, you could burn it out of your system in 24 hours, and then you could drink up, get up and drink like you wanted to drink. And that's what I did. I drank on antabuse on a regular basis to try to control my drinking. And I would drink on the antabuse, and I would lay sick for 24 hours, and then I'd get up and drink like I wanted to drink. And then I would get some so afraid of going back to the hospital, I'd throw the antabuse down me to stop my drinking. And then I'd take the antabuse as long as I could. And if I couldn't take it anymore, I would stop taking the antabuse, but it just couldn't make it until it worked out of my system. I'd have to drink on it. And, and the cycle began until I realized that antabuse was driving me crazy. It just wasn't working for me. So I gave it up. I couldn't believe that it was the alcohol. I, I just couldn't come to terms that it was the alcohol. It had to be the antabuse, so I gave it up. And every emotion that I had, I took out on the people that I worked with and the people that I worked for. I was in the retail business, and I had—I was the manager of a store for a national company. And I hated the people that I worked for, and I hated the people that I worked with, and I hated the customers that came in. I was just a disgusting human being, as far as that goes. But I couldn't, uh, that's where my, uh, and the real hatred was of me. I know that today, but I didn't know that then. I thought it was everything and everybody else in the world. And I took it out on everybody except that man that I had found when I moved to northern Kentucky. And I had him. And I kept him until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. But anyway, um, it progressed along. And it was in 1986 that um, I realized it was the job was my problem. So I called him up and I told him I couldn't do the job anymore and they needed to send somebody in to manage my store. And uh, they kind of gave me what I call a fluff job. They they don't say yes, they don't say no. They just uh, figure that if they can put me off a little bit, they'll call back in an hour or two and I'll be different because that had been my pattern. I mean, many times I'd call them up and screamed at them and I wanted this and I wanted that. And then an hour later, it was all over. And um, But this day, I don't know, I, I told them I, I needed somebody to come manage the store. I was finished. And I had 20 years for that company at the time. 
and they said they didn't have anybody to manage my store, but they'd look around a few days or whatever. And I said, no, you don't get it. When I leave here tonight, if you don't have somebody here to manage my store, I'm just going to set the keys in the middle of the desk, and anybody that walks in can have your store, because I was finished. And uh, I don't know, something must have rang true in my voice to them, because a couple hours later they came to my store and they had somebody in management. And unbeknownst to me, they offered me an assistant manager's job. And I thought, well, that'd be great. Because, you know, my only problem was being the manager for a national company, the pressures. And I, I had to believe that, because I couldn't believe the truth. And so uh, I said, yeah, I'd be a good assistant manager. So I took an assistant manager's job, and they said, the only problem with that that day was that it was 50 miles from my home. I told them that was not a problem. Driving wasn't a problem for me. My only problem was the pressures of being a manager for a national company. And so I said, okay, I take that assistant manager's job, and that was not very far from my hometown, really. And so I was to get up the next morning and go up to that store to be an assistant manager. And uh, before I left that day, they said, well, Linda, would you like to, you know, take a couple of weeks off and rest? And I said, well, no, there's nothing wrong with me. I'll go to work tomorrow. Because, you see, I didn't want anything to be wrong with me. My only problem had to be that the pressures of being a manager for national companies. So I got up the next morning and I drove up to that store to work and I went into that store and what I found was they had a good store manager, they had good employees and good clientele coming into that store. And I started to work for them and I did a good job as an assistant manager. And it wasn't long until I realized what a wonderful job I was doing for them as an assistant manager. And so I called them up and I told them I wanted to be closer to home. I didn't want to make that drive every day. Now I'd only been up there two weeks when I made that call, but I realized I was up. Now I had gone from wanting to leave the company to be the very best they had. And uh, they explained to me they didn't have a store that day, but they would look one around. They'd look around for one, and they kind of put me off, gave me the fluff job. And that went on for a little while. And uh, it got to the point where I was pretty um, upset about it because they weren't moving me. They weren't doing for me what I thought they needed to do. And finally, they called me into the district office, and they made some concessions with me. I would only have to drive up there four days a week, and I would stay overnight one night, and this, that, so I didn't have to make that long drive, because they just didn't have a place for me. So I agreed to do that, because they were going to find the place for me as soon as possible closer to home. In the meantime, they'd offered to move me up there, but I wouldn't move out of northern Kentucky. I told them it was my home. And the truth is, I could have left northern Kentucky, and I don't think anybody would have noticed, but it was important to me to stay there. I don't know why. But anyway, that went on all summer. And over Labor Day, I realized what rotten, lying, cheating son of a bitches they were. And I thought, well, I'll just call them up every day and tell them that. And I did. I called them up every day and I told them exactly that when I went back to work. And uh, they were in the retail business, too. And uh, they weren't always in the office, but it didn't bother me. If they weren't in the office, I called every store they had every day until I found them and I told them that. And uh, after about three weeks of that, I think, they got real tired of it and they called me into the district office. And they had a store closer to home. Only this time they needed to make a contract with somebody because they needed somebody to go in this store and be happy and keep their mouth shut for at least a year. And I knew that would be me because my only problem at that point was driving up that 50 miles. And, you know, they didn't keep me because I was such a great employee. I know that. I know the reason that they kept me, and they had their reasons for keeping me. It was to their advantage, and I couldn't find a job anywhere else, so I had to stay. So anyway, I took this job because they needed somebody to go in there as an assistant manager that needed some stability. They didn't need a revolving door in that position, and I knew that would be for me. So I took that job in late September of 1986. And it wasn't a month or two went by until I realized that there was something desperately wrong. I mean, I was just extremely unhappy, and I didn't know what it was. But I couldn't go back to them because I had made a contract with them. I was going to be happy in that store, and I really wanted to be in Kentucky again. But anyway, uh, what happened is over the holidays, uh, 
over the Christmas holidays, I became, those were very depressing times for me when I drank and I became more unhappy. And uh, I, I not only drank, I gambled and uh, did some other things. And, uh, you know, that's what I called fun. And I woke up on January 1 of 1987 and I realized that the problem I was having, I just wasn't having enough fun. And to me, drinking and gambling was the fun of it. And so I told that man that I'd been with ever since I'd moved to northern Kentucky that uh, if he wanted to stay with me, we had to do things different. <laughs> I'm surprised he did. <laughs> That's still a shock to me. But anyway, uh, I told him, we, you know, we needed to uh, go places. And to me, go places meant Las Vegas and Atlantic City and Reno. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. And so uh, he agreed to it, and that's what we did. And I don't mind telling you that 1987 was the most expensive year of my life. I was on the, I, I'd worked a long time for a company, and I made very good money because they used money a lot of times just to try to shut me up. And uh, I was broke when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. On December 29th of 1987, my drinking wasn't any different than it was that day that I had moved to Florida. You know, I drank as much as I could, as fast as I could, as long as I can stand it. The only thing that I remember about that day is that I started out early, and I was with that man that I was with. And we went to the racetrack. And after two or three races, it froze over and they canceled the races. And I was terribly upset about that. And so we went off to do whatever we did. I don't know. All I know is I woke up on December 30th of 1987 and I didn't have a drink. And any day that I didn't have a drink was a good day. I didn't keep liquor in my house. I didn't need it. Because, you see, I only bought whiskey to drink. I was going to quit tomorrow. I didn't need none for tomorrow or the next day. So I didn't have any in my house and I didn't have a drink and I was fine. And I woke up December 31st of 1987 and I didn't have a drink. I didn't question that. Those were good days for me. I didn't want to drink. I really didn't want to drink. I didn't know how not to drink. And I woke up on January 1 of 1980, or 1988 and I knew that it was over. I didn't even know what it was, but I knew that it was over. And I guess to my thinking, I thought that I would have to go back to that hospital and take care of that problem that I knew that I had. And um, today I know that I woke up hopeless that day that I didn't have any hope of anything being any different. I didn't know that then. I learned that in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything I really know about alcoholism, I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything that I really know about my feelings, I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. I couldn't have identified anything other than fear. And uh, so anyway, I uh, knew that it was over and I didn't know what it was. And I just stayed around the house that day. And I would describe it like a cat in a cage. I couldn't sit, I couldn't stand, I couldn't come, I couldn't go. The book calls it irritable, restless, and discontent. And the deal is, what I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous was, I no longer had a solution to life. God had relieved me of the desire to drink on December 30th when I got up. For whatever reason, uh, I was relieved of the desire to drink. And I had no more solution for life. And that's what was working on me that day. But in 1983, okay, now this was 1988, but in 1983, a girl knocked on my door that had a drug and alcohol problem. And I had met that girl in 1968. 1968, I was living back in Camden, Ohio, that little country town I grew up in. And I was a church camp counselor for the church there. And I went off to church camp, and I met a little camperette named Robin. And Robin, uh, I don't know, she had a drug and alcohol problem all those years, I guess. And in 1983, she looked me up with that drug and alcohol problem. Since I had graduated from the asylum, I felt able to help her. So I hauled her to the charity unit a few times and felt really good about myself doing that. She always thought that I needed to go to the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I didn't need it because, you see, I wasn't, I couldn't. I just couldn't. I couldn't break through the barrier. So anyway, uh, what happened was on that day, uh, January 1, 
it was along about evening, and I decided to clean my kitchen. And I went out to clean my kitchen. I moved my purse, and an acceptance pamphlet fell out. And I'd gotten that acceptance pamphlet from Robin back in 1983 when I was hauling her back and forth to the carry unit. And so I decided to sit down and read that acceptance pamphlet. And I sat down and read it, and it, and it changed my life. You know, I began to find hope in that acceptance pamphlet. It told me that things could be different. If only for this minute, right here, right now, things could be different. I didn't have to live the way that I was living. And I don't, I didn't understand all of that that day, but I only know that I really liked what I read in that book. And she gave me a big book also. And so I went to find that big book that she had given me. And I started to read the big book, and I love the big book about Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I can find me on every page, and it gives me hope. Even today, if I'm having a bad day, I know that I don't have to live like that. That there's a lot of things in my life that are good and can be good if I only do a few simple things. And that's what that book told me. And so it began to give me hope. And so I called that girl up and I said, you know, Robin, I need to go to a meeting. Will you go to a meeting? And she said, no, she wasn't alcoholic no more. Now, all the time I had talked to her, she'd been sober for several years and she wasn't alcoholic now. And I didn't understand that. But I'm a salesperson. That's why I was in the retail business. So I thought, well, I'll just keep calling her up and she'll take me one of them meetings. And so over the next couple of days, I'd call her up numerous times. And I would try to talk to her about taking me to a meeting. And she says, you know, Linda, she says, this, this is the way it is. She said, your parents have enabled you all your life, and that job's enabled you all your life. And she said, uh, every man you've ever had enabled you. And she said, the truth is, you'll either go get drunk, or she said, you can go down to one of them beginner's meetings. And she told me where it was. And I hung up on her because I hated her, because she wasn't going to do for me what I wanted her to do. And that's the way I treated people when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you weren't going to do something to me, for me, to make me feel better, then I had no use for you. And uh, so I hung up on her. I didn't need her anymore. And um, But I did go to that beginner's meeting. She told me where it was and what to do. And I went down to a beginner's meeting in Covington, Kentucky. They called it Russell Street at that time. And I went into the beginner's meeting. I sat down, and I don't really remember anything they talked about. I do remember the two people that uh, were holding the meetings. And uh, I guess we'd been in the meeting for a while, and then they looked at me, and they said, are you going to stay for the big meeting? And I didn't want to say yes, and I didn't want to say no, so I just kind of gave them a little fluff job. And they went on, they talked to the other people there, and I don't know what they were saying, I didn't really care. And then next thing I know, they're looking at me again, they said, well, are you going to stay for the big meeting? And I didn't want to say yes, and I didn't want to say no, so I just kind of went on and gave them a little fluff job. And uh, so they went on with the meeting. And the next thing I know, they're back in my face, and they said, well, are you going to stay for the big meeting? And I'm thinking, my goodness, if you don't stay for the big meeting, you'll never get out of the little meeting. So I said, yeah, I'm going to stay for the big meeting. And the uh, next thing I know, the door opens, and we go out into the big room, and there's a big meeting room there, and they're going to have a meeting. And I didn't know what it was all about. And so I went and stood back by the door, and I put my purse on the table, and I stood back by the door that you come in and out of. And what, the lady that was holding the meeting came and stood between me and the door. And she was talking to me, and uh, she wanted me to go sit down. And I said, well, you know, I've been in that little meeting. I'd just like to stand here and stretch a minute. Why don't you go sit down? And she said, <laughs> she says, because if I do, you're liable to bolt through that door and we'll never see you again. And, you know, I hated her because she was right. That's exactly what my thoughts were. But I didn't want her to be right. You know, I was just too arrogant and egotistical. I didn't want her to be right. So I sat right down in the middle of the room when I stayed for a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can't really tell you what I heard. I must have heard keep coming back. Uh, I know I had nowhere else to go. That's what I know. Uh, so I stayed for a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I came back the next day. And I've been coming to Alcoholics Anonymous ever since. Um, 
a series of events happen, you know, you come into meetings and uh, if you're an alcoholic like I am, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous thinking that I knew everything. I didn't necessarily want to quit drinking, I needed to not live the way that I was living. And I was desperate not to do that. So I'd come here and I would listen to what you had to say and I would try to do the things that you told me. I had a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that I read every day and I read that book every day as much as I could because I liked that book. I wanted to do in Alcoholics Anonymous the things that I liked to do and reading the book was one of those. Coming to meetings was okay um, and so I came to meetings and I'd read that book and uh, he would say things like do 90 meetings in 90 days and I knew that I was too busy for that so I didn't consider that. I went to a meeting every day, I just didn't commit to 90 days. And uh, I think Ian said that last night about commitment, and I was very afraid of commitment. And so I couldn't commit to meeting 90 and 90. And uh, they said to work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I wasn't an illiterate, I knew what that was about. And I would read those steps and I worked those steps. And I did a good job at it in my mind. The problem in my mind was I didn't need all the steps. I just, there were some of them I knew was for you because you needed them. I could see that in the meetings. And, uh, but I went through those steps one by one and I worked the ones that were, I needed to work. And I was working my program and I was staying sober. And, uh, you told me to, uh, work with other alcoholics. And I didn't really know what that was about, but I just sat around and watched people. And then one day, you know, somebody new came in and sat in the middle of the room and I thought, well, I'll work with her. She's a new alcoholic and I worked my steps. The other thing that they did tell me was to get a sponsor. Now, when they said get a sponsor, I heard them say get someone to tell you what to do. Well, I didn't need to do that because I knew what to do. You know, I was pretty sharp cookie, I thought. So uh, I didn't do that. That's not uh, what happened to me. So anyway, this girl came in and sat down, and I kind of made friends with her, and uh, I decided that I would help her work through the steps in the book in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I mean, I was already two weeks sober. I knew it all. And uh, so it wasn't but another week or so and somebody else came in and we decided to work with her because I'd shown this girl so much. We decided to had a third party to our little group and that's what we did. And so there was three of us now working this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, always sitting together doing what we're doing and I'm, I don't know, about three or four weeks sober. And a um, number of things happened very early on. I think this happened in the first week. Um, they said in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of those meetings that you couldn't have an affair and first year of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went home and I called that man that I had been with for eight years and I said, well, we're through. He said, what? I said, well, we're done. We're over. Kaput. And he says, well, why? I said, because I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. And he didn't understand, but neither did I. <laughs> I don't do They said I couldn't do it and I didn't. And today I know. I, today I know that I used that to get rid of that relationship. And the truth is, I probably could have never stayed sober if I'd have stayed in that relationship. And I heard that in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was adamant we were through, never again to speak. And that's not really the way that it worked out, but uh, it ended that day that I went home and heard I heard that in the meeting went home. But today I think about that sometimes, and I'm very grateful because I know that uh, I probably wouldn't have stayed sober if I'd have stayed with him. I had to end all of the things in my life that I was doing in order to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and to stay sober. But anyway, uh, I was about a month sober, and I was sitting in Half Measures Land where I like to sit. And a lady walked in the door and I could, I saw her when she walked in. And she went around and started shaking hands with everybody and introducing herself. And I thought she was the owner of the joy. I mean, I didn't know. I'd been there about 30 days and, uh, you know. And next thing I know, she comes back and sticks her hand in my face and said, hello, my name is Nancy. And she wanted me to tell her my name. And I didn't really want to tell her my name, but she wasn't going to go away until I did. And so I said, well, my name's Linda. And she said, well, hello, Linda. Oh, hi, Nancy. 
And, uh, you know, I like to mind my own business in Alcoholics Anonymous. And anyway, what happened was she went on up to the front of the room and sat down. And she caught my eye because I thought, I like to think that I thought she was a weirdo. But the truth is, she had something I wanted, and I didn't know what it was. You know, she walked into a room, and she was very comfortable to go around and say hello to everybody. And I knew that I could never do that. And, you know, when it come time, I think she stood up and said it was her fourth anniversary. And, that you know, it was amazing to me when I went into a room and somebody had six months or six weeks of sobriety. That, that was beyond my comprehension when I got here. And uh, so I would watch her. And what happened was that uh, I would go to meetings where she was. And the reason I went to meetings where she was is because she would say, Hello, Linda. And I was so lonely when I got here that when she said that to me, it made me feel like somebody cared. And that's the first feeling I'd had in years since I moved away from home, that anybody cared for me. And I followed her around every meeting she went to. And I don't think it matters why you go to meetings. You know what I mean? I went there just so she'd say, Hello, Linda. And it's still warms my heart when she says hello Linda when I walk in a meeting because I know that she cares for me and anyway I thought I wanted her to be my sponsor but I couldn't ask her to be my sponsor and uh, so I would just follow around and see her in meetings and let her say hello Linda and make me feel good and then I'd try to listen to what she had to say and then I would talk to those girls that I made these two friends and I would talk to them and you know, they tell you to go for coffee after the meeting, and we didn't want to have our coffee with you. We wanted to get our coffee to go so we could discuss how everybody's full of baloney in the meetings and how much we knew. And and we would go down there, and we would struggle to work our program, and we would talk about getting a sponsor. And when I'm down on the river, I'd be, I can remember, I'd say, well, I'd puff up real big, and I'd say, well, I'm going to get Nancy for a sponsor. And they'd go, oh, she works the program. I'd say, yeah, maybe I won't get Nancy for a sponsor. It didn't sound like such a good idea then, but, you know, I had to go where Nancy was, and I could only go down to the river and talk about how much I wanted Nancy to be my sponsor, but I couldn't talk to Nancy. And I'm working my program as best I can, and now I'm like four or five months sober, and I don't have a sponsor. And, uh, you know, I, I, I stand here today and I know that there's no rhyme or reason for me to be sober other than the grace of God, and I know that. But whatever else I tell you today, I know it's nothing about Linda. It's all about God's grace in my life. And what happened to me, I was five months sober, and I woke up one morning and I decided to pay my bills. And I was sitting at my desk, and I was paying my bills, and the sun was shining through the window. And I always wonder at what point in my sobriety I'd opened those drapes, because my drapes were real heavy. And you had to have all the lights on at high noon in my place when I drank. And that Sunday morning, I was sitting at my desk paying my bills, and the sun was shining in on me. And I felt really good. And I'll never forget, I got done with my bills, and I leaned back in my chair, and I smiled, and I thought, you know, ain't Alcoholics Anonymous great? Look at this. I'm five months sober. I paid my bills. I got a few bucks left over. I think I want to go down, drop these bills off the post office run over and catch a meeting at Russell Street and head on out to the track for the afternoon. It was a Sunday. And I couldn't have been happier in all my life and I knew it was all due to the people in Alcoholics Anonymous, this organization and all you'd done for me. And that's what I did. I got up and I went down. I dropped them bills off in the post office and I run over to Russell Street to catch a meeting. And I sat down in that meeting and somebody brought up the topic of gratitude. And uh, Somehow it came my turn to talk. And you know, I didn't have one word to share with the people of Alcoholics Anonymous about how grateful I was for all that you had done for me. And I left that meeting as lonely as I've ever been in my entire life. I had more physical and mental pain than I know that I had ever felt. Because, you see, I wasn't working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And I knew that the only thing that I could do is I could either go back from where I came or I had to get somebody to help me work that program. And I didn't have a choice. That person was going to be that lady Nancy that I didn't want that was working that program. And I didn't know what to do and I was in this pain but I just couldn't bring myself to call her up and ask her. And you know, in every meeting we read the traditions and it talks about a second tradition about a loving God. And I like to hear that in a meeting. I like to hear those words that there's a loving God out there for me. And that loving God, the next time my phone rang through the grace of a loving God, it was that Nancy on the other end of my phone. And Nancy called me up because she said, you know, Linda, I didn't think you were very good the last time I saw you and I wanted to know if you were all right. And I assured her I was fine. Now, I couldn't have been in more mental or physical pain than ever, but I told her that I was fine. And she talked to me and she asked me if I had a sponsor and I said, no, but I'm going to get me one real quick. And she talked to me about the importance of having a sponsor. And I told her not to worry. I had several people on my list that I was going to get me one. I didn't want her to know that she was going to be my sponsor. But I, I, you know, and she gave me every opportunity, every opportunity with love and kindness for me to step across that line and get her to be my sponsor. But I just couldn't do it. I couldn't. And I hung up that phone and I wrestled with that pain and, and the, the torture that I was having. It wasn't just mental pain. It was physical pain because, you see, I knew I had to do this or I was going to go back to living the way that I was, and I didn't want to do that. And I, I never, in my mind, I don't remember relating that to not drinking. I just remember not drinking allowed me to live better. And so uh, I lasted a couple of days, and then I finally called her up and asked her to be my sponsor. And she said she'd be glad to be my sponsor. And she said to me, she says, you know, the only thing that I ask is that if I make a suggestion, that you at least try. And I told her that would not be a problem. And you know that wasn't a problem. So she made her first suggestion. I, I didn't like it. I, I didn't think it had anything to do with drinking, and I didn't like it. It had to do with other things that I was doing in my life that I thought were acceptable, and she didn't. And so anyway, I at least gave it a try, and that was kind of a struggle for me, that particular thing. And since then, it's come up a few times, and it's been a struggle a few times. <laughs> But I've always tried because she's always made the suggestions uh, of things that would help me get better. And uh, so I started really to work this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I, ha I know is that I came to Alcoholics Anonymous hopeless. But I had to be rendered helpless before I could reach out and ask for the help that I needed to work this program. And she took me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, the fourth step was rather painful for me because that's Linda looking at Linda, and Linda never wants to look at Linda, even today. That's painful for me is to look at myself. But it's just a necessary thing. I have to do it. But once I had done the fifth step, then somehow in my mind I thought I owned my sponsor. You know, I thought she knew everything about me, and she still liked me, so I would just become a part of her. And so I followed her around. I ate what she ate. I did the things she did. I breathed the air that she breathed. Now, she's married. She's got a husband. It didn't bother me none. He could go if he wanted to, but I was there. <laughs> I just slept with them if they'd have left me. I mean, I'm serious. I went everywhere with them, and they put up with me. I mean, they were very kind and loving. They put up with me. But I didn't know how to do anything else. I didn't know how to do anything but just to latch on and hang on. And uh, they allowed me to do that. And she helped me work through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, ever since then, uh, it's just been a continual thing to work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the, uh, the journey that I've uh, had the last 16 years, there's just no words to describe uh, how different my life is. And I know that it's all due to Alcoholics Anonymous and the grace of God. I've, um, you know, it hasn't all been, every day's not been a holiday with me. 
There's been some difficult times and there's been some happy times. But, um, you know, over a period of time, I've, uh, I think that I've learned a little bit about loving others and, and I know I've learned a lot about others loving me. That's just been real important in my life. Um, I don't know, I, uh, somewhere in the, uh, you know, I'd worked through the steps and, uh, you, you never really finished with them, so the, the amends thing kind of goes on and it goes on in my life today, really. But I, I did the best that I could and somewhere in the five to ten year period what happened to me was that uh, I, re- I thought that I was doing something to keep me sober. That's really what happened. Uh, I don't know, one day or one week or something, somebody said something and I thought, well, I, I was doing it, you know, I'm, I'm doing the deal. I'm working the steps and I'm going to meetings and I'm doing everything you tell me not that's the reason I'm staying sober. And what happened with that kind of thinking in, in a mind like mine is that kind of snowballs and grows really big in your mind. And then you really think you're doing something to keep you sober. And, and what that did for me was that separated me from you and from God. And uh, I'm very fortunate because I went on like that for quite some time. And uh, I'll just tell you what brought me back was in 1999, um, I, I had several deaths in my family. My oldest brother lost his wife to cancer, and that's the first, uh, I don't know, I, I wasn't grieving the death as much as I was the feelings that my brother had. And uh, that was in January of 1999, and then in May of 1999, my youngest brother died, and, and I was the closest with him. He, he was a year apart from me, and he was the one on my doorstep, and probably one of the first amends that I attempted to make. And we were rather close. He lived in Kentucky, and uh, he died in May of 1999, and that was pretty shattering and shocking to me and six weeks later my father died and uh, this really isn't about the death of them it's about the fact that I was thinking that I was keeping me sober and I really didn't have a relationship with God or you people at that time and what happened was I I got up one morning and I was reading them books that my sponsor told me I had to read on the side of my bed and uh, the thought came to me you know I just don't want to do this anymore and I didn't and the next thought is well if you don't do this, you're going to get that. And you know, I knew that that day because my sponsor has me go to a detox meeting and a recovery house meeting for women every week. And I see what happens if you don't do this. Then you get that. And I'm no different than those people. And I was so angry that morning because I didn't want to pray to God anymore. I didn't like him. I, was, I wasn't close to him. There were times in my early sobriety that I felt like God had his arms around me. But once I thought I was doing something... That just, I began to separate myself. And so for me, since that time, I decided obviously to continue to do that. And uh, it's been um, somewhat difficult, I think, to rebuild the relationship with God. And I know that's not him. I know that that's me. But I think that my relationship with God is better today than it's ever been. And it's probably because I, I'm, without a doubt, I know that I'm not doing anything to keep me sober. What I'm doing here is coming here and allowing you to tell me how to live my life to survive in a world in which I just couldn't survive in before I got here. You know, God loves me and you love me. And I can't ask for any more than that in my entire life. If, you know, if I die tomorrow, I've had it all today. And I know that. And I can't tell you what freedom there is to know that and be able to admit it. Because when I was carrying that lie around knowing who I was and what I was, and I just couldn't face the truth, I just, I can't tell you what a horrible way that was to live. Other thing is that, um, I don't know, um, I guess I'll tell you this story. This happened when I was about 
four or five years sober. And this story really tells you what I was like and what happened and what it's like today. This kind of sums up, I could probably tell you my whole lead in three minutes with this story. Because this, my whole life was like this. And, uh, what happened was, when I worked, I worked in the automotive repair business when I was a store manager, worked at that national company. And uh, I was four or five years sober. And I was working that day, it was a Wednesday, I was working and my mother called. And uh, I was working in Kentucky at that time. My mother called up and she was living back in that little town about 65 miles from there. Said that she needed to get her car serviced and she wanted to drive down the next day and get her car serviced. And I said, well, I said, that's a good idea. Why don't you come down tomorrow about 4.30 and we'll service your car and we'll go out to dinner and you can spend the night because I'm off on Friday. And she goes, no, Linda, she says, you're busy. She says, I think I'll just uh, come down tomorrow and get my car serviced. If you want to go out to dinner, we can. But she says, I think I'll drive on home. And I said, don't be silly. I said, you come down tomorrow and we'll get your car serviced and we'll go out to dinner and you can spend the night. She goes, I don't know, Linda. She says, you're awful busy. She says, I don't think. She says, I'll just come on home. I said, don't be silly. I said, you come down tomorrow at 4.30. And I said, we'll service your car. We'll go out to dinner and you can spend the night. I said, I'm off on Friday. We'll go shopping. We'll do something. She says, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. And she said, okay. And she hung up the phone and I hung up the phone. And then I got this big ball of fire in my stomach. Why would she come down here and bother me on my only day off? I'm busy, for God's sake. I mean, I really didn't have time to fool with her. And then I felt like a real schmutz, you know, because how do you say you don't want your mother? But I just couldn't figure out in my mind why she would do it. I was baffled. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll just have to put up with it. Just, you know. So uh, I was to pick up my sponsor because she was going to do a meeting, a service meeting or something, and I had some errands to run. So I ran over to Cincinnati and picked up my sponsor. And um, she got in the car, and we're driving in the car, and uh, we'd gone a couple blocks, and we were talking about something. I don't know what it was. And, and she looks over at me, and she goes, Linda, is something wrong? She says, you seem a little bitey. I said, no, there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> she said, okay. And so we're driving on. We go out on out the interstate there. We're going to take her out to her service meeting. And we're talking about something. I don't know what it is. And she looks over at me and she says, Linda, are you sure you're not biting? There's something wrong with you? I said, no, there's nothing wrong with me. It's your bitching that's getting on my nerves. If you'd leave me alone, I'd be fine. And she said, okay. And so we just went on right out there and I let her out that church. And she got out of the car and she bent over and she goes, you know, there is something wrong with you. You are biting. She slams that door and I'm thinking, well, just walk in front of my car and I'll run right over you. Because I couldn't stand her anymore. And uh, she didn't walk in front of the car. She lives. She's not here this weekend, but she's still going. Uh, anyway, um, I couldn't stand her, though. And um, what happened was I had some errands to run. So I went on out to Sam's Club to uh, do whatever I needed to do. But I got out there and found that I didn't. They didn't have nothing I wanted, and I didn't like their prices, and I was never going back. And uh, the next thing I wanted to do was get a pack of cigarettes, and so I had a coupon for a pack of cigarettes. So I went into this place, and I mean, they had walls of cigarettes. And I laid down my coupon, I wanted that cigarette, and they didn't have those cigarettes. And I stood there and argued, I wanted them cigarettes on that coupon. Now, they offered me just a pack. But I wanted the kind on the coupon. Now, I don't smoke, but I wanted them cigarettes out there, you what? So I finally took some of off brand they wanted to give me for that. But I mean, I was not happy, I'm going to tell you. that I was going to tell everybody never to go there. They didn't have a good kind of cigarette. And, you know, then the next thing I went to get a hamburger. And, you know, I didn't like the way the guy waited on me or anybody else. And that's the world I lived in. There was nothing ever any good enough for me. And as I'm going back to that church to pick up that sponsor, I knew one of two things. I was either going to have to tell her what was going on with me because I had to stop packing that stuff away. Or I would drink. And you know, I might not have drank that day, that year. When? I might have been 10 years for a drink. But if I'm going to continue to pack it away, I will drink. So I went back and I got that sponsor. 
picked her up from that meeting and we're heading out because we were going to go to a meeting together and uh, I said, well, I might be a little bitey. <laughs> I, I, I still hate admitting that. I, I do. Anyway, I said, oh, okay. And she just says, you know, she's just a loving person. She says, well, who wants to tell me that? And so I said, okay. And so I tell her the story about it. And the answer that she gave me that day is the answer that she gave me every day prior to then and every day since then. She says, Linda, I'll tell you what you do. She said, when we get out here to the church, she says, you go into the bathroom. She says, you get on your knees and you ask God to help you. It'll be all right. And I hated that answer, but I knew that that's what I'd have to do. So I went out there and I, I got in, went into the bathroom and I got down on my knees and prayed. And I asked God to help me and immediately the ball of fire went away in my stomach. And I knew that it was going to be all right. And my mom came for the visit and it was a good visit. It was a great visit. She was packing up to leave, and I asked her to stay, move in. And uh, that seems a little insane, but sometimes the brain's not always connected to the mouth. And, you know, uh, there is a loving God. She said no. She thought she'd just go on home. <laughs> you know, I don't want to say good, but I was relieved. When I'm saying it to her, why don't you just stay and move in? I'm thinking, why are you doing this, you know? But that's the story of my life. I, that is me. You know, if it's not for the help that you people give me, I would just be a lunatic all the time. And... uh so I don't know. Um, everything's kind of progressed along, and I retired from that job that I had so many problems with. And uh, I don't know. Life just seems to get better and better. And I work in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have some plenty of women to work with, it seems like, most of the time. And uh, I've just been given all the gifts. I, I don't know, really know how to explain it, you know. I didn't know in 1973 when I moved to Tampa, Florida, and checked into that Ramada in Bush Boulevard, bought that bottle of whiskey, that my life was about to start on a spiral downward. But today I know that that's what happened to me little by little, day by day, up to and through December 29th of 1987. When I got up on December 30th of 1987 and didn't take a drink, I had not one clue of what life was going to be like. But what happened to me is that my life has just continually got better and better every day. The one thing I do know is that that's the grace of a loving God and the love and the fellowship of the people in this room. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. To obtain additional copies, receive a free catalog of AA and Al-Anon talks, or to find out about our tape and CD of the Month Club, call Encore Audio Archives at 1-800-878-1308 or visit our website at www.12steptapes.com.